time that we can worship you. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning, that you would uh, just quiet our hearts, Lord, and that you would open up our open up our hearts and our minds to what you want us to hear and to um, just to be ministered to this morning, God. Lord, we give you our worship, and we pray for all aspects of the worship, Lord, that it would be pleasing to you, that our hearts would be in the right place, God, and that um, you would be glorified. In your name we pray, amen. So as Anthony's playing this, um, this the background music right now, and we're going to sing a song that might be a little bit new to some of you called Mary Did You Know? And I really love this song because it talks about Mary and how she didn't know um, what God had in store for her, but she still had faith, and she carried she carried baby Jesus, who uh, who became the Savior of the world, and that's why we celebrate Christmas. So let's um, sing with reflective and also with thankful hearts as we sing this song.
thankful to God. We're so thankful, Lord, that you are the lamb and that you are the great I am. You are king and you are almighty, God. Let's all stand for this next song. to God, acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.
so thankful, God, in that your love is constant and unchanging.
Can you join me by greeting your neighbors? And while we greet, we're going to go ahead and excuse the kids as well. But please greet your neighbors. Well, again, good morning, and welcome to Harvest Community Church. We're so glad you're here with us to celebrate uh, this Advent, really, uh, as we lead up to Christmas. And it's just a great time of year. Uh, the, the, the schedules are jam-packed, but it's all good stuff, and so we want to look at our announcements this morning. But uh, actually, uh, the first couple announcements has to do with a couple of needs we have at our church. Uh, we're still in need of a trailer driver, so you have any willing heart and ability to, and, and a tow hitch, uh, please see Andy. And we're always looking for Promised Land teachers. I saw that there's a schedule inside the bulletin, so if you could kindly... So if you could buy a truck. <laughs> All right. Um, well, hopefully someone with a the, with the truck and a tow hitch then. Uh, but Promise Sign teachers are needed. Again, there's a schedule inside your bulletin. And so uh, if you feel so led. If you have questions about whether you should teach or not, uh, you know, you know talk, talk to Sammy. Uh, talk to Herman. They'd love to talk to you. And, and, uh, but I really want to encourage you. It's, it's a great ministry. And it's, it's such a wonderful time to be able to spend with the kids. And I spent last month back there. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's not always easy, but um, it's certainly worthwhile and fulfilling. Uh, today, Spins Fellowship uh, after service. Stay in the studio from 1130 to 115. Um, and just a reminder that the, the Senior Center will be closed on Sunday, December 24th. So uh, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday this year. So this will be closed. So we're going to uh, meet at the Atrium Hotel. And there will be more, more to come on that. It's prayer Circle this Wednesday on December 6th, 8 to 9 at the Leals. And for Couples Garden, I'll have Bernice and Brian come up. Thank you, Al. I'd like to invite you again to our Spins Fellowship this coming Friday, December 8th. And we thought we'd do something a little different right now to introduce the topic. We're going to attempt to reenact a situation that actually happened a few months ago between Bernice and I. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the background is um, we moved to Lake Forest a few months ago, and we were eating at a Wahoo's, like, uh, uh, only a mile away from our house, and we noticed there was a Daiso in the same plaza. So we're like, oh, great, we can buy some things. <laughs> so we'll go there a couple days later. So it's a couple days later. We're driving to Daiso. So, honey, it's um, Daiso, D-A-I-S-O? Uh, yeah. Yes, but you don't need a GPS. It's only a mile away. We were, we were there just a couple days ago. Just take a left on El Toro and left at Mirlands. Left on Mirlands, okay. <laughs> left on Mirlands. Oh, wait, no, not literally left at Mirlands. 
past Maryland, it's to your left. Oh. Now, and we're stuck. We can't, we have to go all the way around now. You said our left on Maryland's. <laughs> I was just giving general directions. I thought you remember we were here two days ago. So turn around and make a U-turn? Yes, I guess so. Right? Okay. You know I'm bad with directions. Well, I didn't realize you're this bad. Ooh. Well, Brian, sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that. It was being pretty disrespectful. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, you know I was pretty angry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. It's not a funny manner, you know. I'm, I'm serious, serious, serious. Yes, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, forgive me, please. Okay, so next time I'll, I'll use GPS. Yes, we'll use GPS next time. So um, this actually happened, and I was pretty angry. Praise God, I didn't react out of anger. I almost did, but I didn't. And um, just a reminder of myself that I realize how much respect is important to a man, especially in our marriage. So, so this, the topic this Friday is about um, a woman's role in marriage, about um, regarding um, respect and um, other things. And um, so we'll be learning more about how respect can positively impact um, a woman's real, woman's respect of her husband can positively impact her husband and her marriage and God's glory too. So be this coming Friday, be a potluck, childcare be provided, and also we're having a gift exchange. So please bring a $10 gift or a nice re-gift. So might you guys come RSVP with Donna or by the Evite. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you, guys. Uh, the part, Christmas party, and uh, oh, I'm sorry, I missed the men will come out for donuts and coffee uh, this Saturday, December 9th, uh, 7 to, uh, to 8.30 at Woodbridge Village Center, and see Eric Tom if you're interested in that. Uh, the park potluck party will be on Saturday, December 9th from 6 to 9 at Irvine Press. Bring a $10 gift for an exchange. I can see Michael if you have any questions, and our big bunko night for the ladies is coming up on Friday, December 15th. And if you're going to Mexicali, make sure you get to bed early enough because uh, the very next day we'll be going to Mexicali, which is Sunday, Saturday, December 16th. Uh, I know we announced before, but um, every year we go down to Mexicali to give gifts to kids down there that are in our need. Um, next Sunday is our last Sunday before we go. So if you took a name for gifts, please bring your, if you're not, and you're not going with us, please bring your gift next Sunday. Uh, we also take old clothes or any um, you know, stuff that's good to donate. Uh, we, we, whatever fits in the car, we'll take. You know, we, we usually stuff up the cars with things, and, and we just uh, you know give it out there. And and, and, and God bless it that that it'll be used well, and, and that the people that are in need are less fortunate than us. We get to share a little bit of Christ's love during this Christmas season. So it's a great, great trip. If you have any questions, please come see me. I'll be hanging out by that by that Christmas tree in the back uh, after service. Well, this morning uh, we have our message titled "Crooked Branches in the Family Tree," and. I'm sure after Thanksgiving and all the family stuff, we probably all have a couple crooked branches in our families, I'm sure. But I'm sure that's not what it means. So let's find out. Let's open up our scripture today. It's Joshua 2, 1 to 21. It's actually a long passage, but we're going to go ahead and read through the whole thing to get our money's worth. And I'm going to encourage you, please grab the Bibles in the, in the, in the, in the, in the rows if you don't have a Bible with you, because it would be good to read along. 
Uh, Joshua 2, 1 to 21. I'll give you a minute to do that. Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. Oh, no, no, just wait. Did I sense that? <laughs> okay, Joshua 2, 1 to 21. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords, and the, uh, fords of the Jordan, and as soon as, as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. Sorry. So that all the, who live in this country are melting with fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, for when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og and the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When you heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven and above and on the earth below. Now, when, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your life, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought, brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside of your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our heads if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what... Tell them what we are doing. We'll be released from the oath you made, made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. All right. All together. Good to be with you today. My wife happens to be in Hawaii right now, otherwise she would be with me, so what can I say? I'm committed. She's not so committed, I guess. Uh, uh, she's going a few days early to 
see some friends. I've got a destination over there, and so I'll be there next week, and uh, I'm going to be performing a wedding. So you know how it is when you get invited to Hawaii, you pray about it till you get the victory and then go. So that's what you're doing. All right. Uh, crooked branches in the family tree, and there's a thin tie-in to the Advent season, and we'll reveal it at the end a little bit. Appreciate the reading. Let me tell you a little story about desperation. I, I've shared with you before that I go over to South Asia um, once, twice a year sometimes, and have been doing this for about 30 years. My first trip, however, was unique and uh, very different. I went with a group of uh, nine others, so there were ten in our group, and we were gone for a little over a month. And we spent some time in Japan, and then we went to Bangladesh, and then we went to Nepal, and uh, finally to India. But uh, while we were in Nepal, we took a seven-day Himalayan trek. We actually flew out of Kathmandu, the capital city there, and flew up to a little mountain airport uh, in the little town of Lukla. And the airport is actually uh, built right on the side of a mountain. So uh, you've got a big mountain here, and the airport is going uphill when you land, and you hope to stop before you hit the mountain here. And then when you take off, you're going downhill, and you hope to be airborne before you plummet down into the canyon here. It uh, wins the prize every year as the most dangerous airport in the entire world. Uh, but we did it, went up into a little small craft, and... Uh, got there and landed, and we went on the trek and uh, got up to about 15,000 feet, had some great views of some of the mountain peaks, including Everest. Then we came uh, back down to Lukla and flew back to Kathmandu. And we were leaving that night uh, for a town in the southern part of India. Uh, the problem is, is that our backpacks, six or seven of the backpacks that we carried up there didn't make it off the mountain in Kathmandu, and we knew that uh, if we left them there and went to another country, we'd never see it again, and some of the items in the backpack were absolutely necessary to the individuals that were with us. And so somebody had to wait behind and uh, gather the luggage and uh, then make their way down to Pune, India, uh, on their own. Well, the rest of the team would take off that night. And I, never having been over there before, won the lottery. And uh, so I waited for an extra day, and uh, the next morning the backpacks did come off of the mountain. And uh, so there were about six of them. They weighed, you know, somewhere around 15 pounds apiece. And so I stuffed them all into a giant bag, big duffel bag. They all fit in there. It weighed about 90 pounds. And so I, I took that and I, I flew from Kathmandu to New Delhi. And uh, that night I was going to cap, catch a flight to Pune. When I got to Delhi, now in those days, Delhi's got a world-class airport now, but back in those days it uh, had a little international airport and a little domestic airport, and they were about six, seven miles apart. So I landed at the international side in the evening, and I had to get over to the domestic airport in order to catch a flight out. And so I took a bus and a lot of stops. It took about an hour to get there, actually. And then I got to the domestic airport and all of the lights were out. The place was just totally shut down, closed. It was dark. And so I said, what do I do now? And so I 
got in another bus and went back to the international airport and asked them about it and says, yeah, it just closed and uh, no flights are leaving. And I said, well, what do I do now? And he says, well, you do whatever you want to do. Uh, and so I said, well, can I, can, I, uh, can I spend the night here? And they said, yeah, you can go in and sit down. And so I went in there at the international side and in a waiting area and just kind of spent the night there. Next morning, I, I got up and I said, I want to take a flight to Pune now. And they said, no, that's all been canceled, so uh, we can't get there. And I said, well, I got to thinking a little bit, so I bought a ticket from Delhi to what was then called Bombay, the English name. It's now Mumbai. And so uh, that's about 150 miles from where I was going. And so I, I caught a flight to Bombay. And uh, then I said, I'd like to find a, an airplane ticket to Pune. And they said, well, we don't have any flights to Pune today. He says, well, I've got to get there. And they says, well, you can take a train. I says, okay. So where's the train? Where do I catch that? He says, well, it's about a half a mile from here. And if you, you may catch a, ta a cab, but you can walk there as well. And so anyway, I got out, no cabs in sight, so I carried this 90-pound bag, and I walked a half a mile to a little train stop called Dadar. And they says, when you get to Dadar, go up to the middle of, go to downtown Bombay to Victoria Terminus, and you can catch a train from there. So I caught a train in Dadar, then went, well, the, it was hard catching a train in Dadar because every time I had all of this luggage and train would stop and there would be so many people on that train, they would be getting off and people would be crowding on and I couldn't get my bag and me into that train and I missed two of them that way. And so that, I was there about an hour and uh, finally I saw a couple of young guys and uh, they spoke broken English, and I was happy they understood me, but I said, you know, if you can get me and this luggage on this next, next train, I'll reward you handsomely financially. <laughs> and uh, man, when that train stopped, they grabbed my stuff and bolted on that thing, and bodies were flying, but we made it on it. <laughs> and then we got to Victoria Terminus, and Victoria Terminus is a, like a square mile of just trains going in every direction, and some parked, and I was like amazed. Where in the world do I find the right train to, to Pune? And I walked around for about an hour and couldn't find anything, and then I found an angel of the Lord who understood what my dilemma was, and he took me over to a train that was going to Pune. Uh, and so I waited about an hour for the train. I got on the train, and uh, about an hour later, after a number of stops, we got to Dadar, which is where I'd been four hours ago. <laughs> I could have taken a train there south to where I was going, but anyway, I, I was so exhausted, and then I, I got on the train and put all of the stuff on there and uh, made it uh, to Pune. In fact, they had to wake me up when they got to Pune, otherwise I'd have taken it all the way down to the very tip of India. That's where it was going. And I got out uh, of the train there, and I said, where's Union Biblical Seminary? And they said, nobody had any idea where this was, and Pune is a city of about a, two or three million people, scattered out all over the place. I had another name, Bibwiwadi, and I said, where's Bibwiwadi? And some, uh, an Indian who drove this motorized rickshaw says, I know where it's at. And he really didn't know where it was at, he just wanted the business. And 
it, you know, it was uh, literally about a 20-minute drive, but it actually it took us two hours to get there, and somehow we made it on the campus of Union Biblical Seminary, and I was reunited with the team. And the whole ordeal, from very beginning to end, uh, took exactly 24 hours, and it was worthy of a television series. Could have been called 24, I don't know, <laughs> you never know. But you know when you're exhausted, and when you're panicked, and when you're desperate, you're just looking for anybody or anything that will give you a measure of hope, and uh, just to continue. When I think of real desperation, this woman in the story that we just read a few minutes ago, Rahab, uh, was truly desperate. Uh, she lived in the city of Jericho, and Jericho uh, is a desert city 1,200 feet below sea level that sits just about where the Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea. And it really redefines barrenness. I mean, the killer bees on Interstate 10 headed east, like Beaumont, Banning, Barstow, Baker, Blythe, they're like tropical forests compared to Jericho, and yet that's where Rahab lived. And uh, she was a harlot. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure her name is mentioned in the Bible without accompanying that particular name, Rahab the harlot. But it wasn't out of disgrace that she wore that title. Uh, not like uh, Hester... Hester Prynne in Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, that great, great novel. And in this old New England town, she had uh, committed adultery, and so she had to wear this scarlet A wherever she went and was uh, shunned by the people. Uh, and all the way through the novel, you're wondering, you know, who was it in that little small New England town that shared her guilt? And it turned out to be Arthur Dimsdale the well-respected pastor in that town. But uh, Rahab's moniker uh, wasn't intent to describe what she was at that time. It was really there to describe what God's grace did to her life and what she, in fact, would become. And uh, so let me just put the story in a little bit of the historical context here. You know, God uh, in Genesis there... Uh, God uh, saw the decline of the human race after the sin in the garden, and then they built this Tower of Babel there in Genesis 11, and everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, and God says, I need to do something to correct the sin problem. And so he called Abraham out of, the, of Ur in the Chaldees, which is really modern-day Baghdad, and he says, I want you to go to a place I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make of you a great nation, and one's going to come from your seed that's going to correct this mess here in the earth right now. So Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness, and he went with his wife Sarah and uh, to what would be the promised land, and uh, they were looking, as from their offspring, that the actual uh, Savior would come. And uh, they had the promised child, Abraham and Sarah, and that would be Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons, and the one in the Messianic line was Judah of the 12. And you may recall as well that Joseph was his favorite son, and Joseph was so naive that he played the role of a favorite. And finally, his brothers hated him so much that when they were off tending the sheep, they sold him to a band of Ishmaelites, 
who were on their way to Egypt, and they took Joseph and sold him into slavery there. He winds up being owned by Potiphar, and he's serving Potiphar and his household, and Potiphar's wife tempts him, and he won't fall for it. And so she tells Potiphar, her husband, that Joseph made you know, all kinds of advances toward her, and I don't think he really believed it, but he could have had him killed, but he threw him in prison anyway instead. And then while he was in prison, he interpreted a couple of dreams of the baker and the butler, and uh, they both came true. And then Pharaoh had a dream, and somebody said, well, there's a guy in prison that's pretty good at interpreting dreams. And so Pharaoh pulls him out and says, this is my dream. And Joseph interpreted the dream and says, you're going to have seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, so you need to prepare for it. And Pharaoh says, okay, you're the one that's going to do it. And Joseph rises in power. He's second in command of all of Egypt, and he prepares them during those seven years of plenty so that they became the breadbasket for the surrounding world during that time. And the famine was there in Canaan, and so Jacob sent his sons down to Egypt to buy grain. And lo and behold, they run into Joseph and all kinds of drama and tricks and things are going on there. But ultimately, Joseph makes himself known and he forgives them for what they did. And Joseph brought the entire family down to Egypt, put them in the best spot in Egypt, the land of Goshen, where they could grow as a chosen nation and uh, then ultimately go back to Canaan. So they stayed down there for 400 years, actually. Uh, And then finally a pharaoh came uh, to power that didn't know about Joseph, and he enslaved the Israelite people, and they became the labor force. And finally, you know, God says, okay, it's time for the nation to go back to Canaan. And Pharaoh wasn't interested in letting his entire labor force go, and so God sent those 10 steps of divine persuasion, you remember that, called plagues. And the, the final plague was the death of the firstborn, that Passover dinner they celebrated. And when that plague hit, uh, Pharaoh says, okay, you can leave. And so they take off. The Jewish nation is going under Moses' leadership, and Moses was born there in Egypt. And then Pharaoh changes his mind, of course. He sends his army after them, and the familiar story of God just opening up the walls of the water there on the Red Sea, and they crossed on dry land, and then the Egyptians were, were coming through, and the waters closed on them, and now they were in the Sinai Peninsula. It was an eight-day walk, I should say an 11-day walk, to the Promised Land. And they get to the Promised Land, and they send in 12 spies, And 10 of them come back and say, no, we can't go into Canaan. We can't do that at all. There's giants in the land will be swallowed up. And so, you know, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, they says, no, we could do this. And the people followed the 10, and therefore God says, okay, this generation's not going in. And so they wandered around the Sinai Peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula, for 40 years till they all died off. And then the mantle was passed over to Joshua. See, Moses led the people right up to the promised land. He gave his last will and testament, his final speech. He dies there. He's buried on Mount Nebo. And Joshua now is going to lead the conquest. And Jericho, Jericho itself, is the first uh, city that's going to actually be killed, uh, be, be taken, first military target. It was a fortress city. By the standards of that day, it was absolutely impregnable. 
and uh, especially for ex-slaves without any military experience. So before the invasion, Joshua sends a couple of spies into Jericho itself. And uh, they were to gather information about the city gates, the fortified towers, the military might, the morale of the people, and so forth, and then take the information back. Uh, When they got inside the city walls, they went to Rahab's house. They certainly weren't interested in her professional services, so to speak, but they knew that they wouldn't be noticed. You know, men were always coming from that seedy part of Jericho. Uh, But they were noticed, and the king gets word of it, and so he sends his troops over to Rahab's house and inquires, hey, what's going on with these people? And she says, well, you know what? Uh, They left just before dusk, right before the gates closed. If you you hurry up, uh, you'll get them. But if you tarry here, you're going to lose them. And uh, so they take off. She obviously told the lie, and I'm kind of cool with that. It's kind of like Corey Tin Boom uh, telling the Nazis that uh, there aren't any Jews in our house, you know, when she was really hiding them. People with murderous intent uh, really don't deserve the truth. But nevertheless, uh, the presence of the spies was not good news for Jericho. Uh, The Israelites were camped to the east of the city, and the entire city of Jericho was on alert. Now, after sending the, the king's men on a wild goose chase, she goes up to the roof, to talk to the spies where they were hiding. And she's, again, it was red, but she says this, I know the Lord has given you the land. Tear has fallen on all of us. We heard how the waters of the Red Sea dried up and how the, you destroyed the Ammonites and our hearts melted and we were absolutely fearful. And then she said, the Lord your God is the God of heaven above and the God of earth below. Now that's a pretty amazing confession. It's remarkable how much Rahab knew of Jewish history and the Jewish God, Israel's God. You see, the Red Sea miracle had happened four decades earlier. And so what was happening is Rahab was working on a 40-year-old rumor, and when the final opportunity came, she put all of her chips in the middle of the table and went for broke, believing that the God of Israel was the real deal. And then she asked the spies, Will you deal kindly with me and my father's house and keep us alive when the, when the attack comes? And the two, the two spies laid out three conditions. First of all, the scarlet cord used to lower us to safety must be in the window. Secondly, your father's household and you must be in this house. And third, it must be kept a secret. Uh, and, and so it was. Uh, you know, the scarlet cord discussion of that goes all the way back to A.D. 95 with Clement of Rome. And the general consensus is, is that Rahab was preserved because she was covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the story. What about the intervention? Where was God when Rahab uh, was desperate? Uh, When I say that Rahab was desperate, I don't mean that she was despondent. I don't mean that she was grasping for straws. I don't mean she was ready to throw in the towel. It just means that she had reached the end of her human wisdom, and she needed a divine resource. And, And God, she needed gifts, and she got them. And let me just briefly talk to you about three gifts that God gave this woman 
First of all, he gave her the gift of faith, and it is a gift. I'll explain that. You know, she had heard the reports, again, uh, of the God of Israel. When the opportunity came, she, she believed and she went for it. You know, in the last half century, and I'm talking about our century, the last half century or so, thinkers in the area of epistemology, which is the philosophy of how you know things, have pretty much concluded, reached consensus on the fact that without faith, it's just about impossible to know anything uh, with with certainty. Uh, For example, you know, how do you select the best person for a job from a large pool of applicants? Well, you check past history, you look at the references, you evaluate character, but all that does is, is reduce uh, the field, uh, you know, and helps you make a better choice, but, you know, how do you know for sure? Well, the only way you're going to ever know for sure is if you become vulnerable and simply make the hire. Uh, external evidence only actually reduces the field, but once you make the hire, then and only then will you know whether or not you've chosen well. So evidence leads to probability, which leads to commitment and vulnerability, which then leads to certainty. Now some of you, I would assume some of you in here are somewhat perfectionistic. And those of you who are perfectionistic have always struggled with the faith process. Because you don't want to commit till you know for sure, but you'll never know for sure until you commit. Right? You don't want to become vulnerable until you know for sure, but you'll never know for sure until you become vulnerable. Um, faith is essential for knowing, and Rahab's faith in hiding the spies was a faith move. Now, the faith that she existed, that she exhibited, I should say, when she trusted God, and the faith that you exhibit when you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is also a gift. And we kind of forget that a little bit. Uh, Because most of us believe somehow God provides the evidence and uh, I'll I'll muster up the faith to believe in it uh, once I'm convinced of the evidence. And I I don't hold that uh, anymore, and, and here's why. The greater the object of our faith, the more radical the vulnerability you need in order to trust that object. Now, you walked in here today and you sat down in one of these chairs here. Uh, But your vulnerability, if the chair fails, is not as bad as a poor hire for your company. And the vulnerability of a poor hire is is not the same as uh, making a friend. And the vulnerability of making a friend is not as high as choosing a spouse. See, let's bump it up to the highest level. How do you know for sure Jesus Christ alone is the uh, giver of eternal life, because a wrong decision here has eternal consequences. You know, uh, maybe some of you sat on the fence for a long time before you fell. Maybe some of you are sitting on the fence right now. What's it going to take for you to know? Well, the only way to know an absolute being is to make an absolute commitment and become absolutely vulnerable, and this is where the whole faith process breaks down, and let me tell you why. Because there are two layers to your soul and two layers to my soul. One layer God put down when he created us in his image. Uh, He designed for us to to love him, want him, need him in every aspect of life. But when sin came into the world and we all inherited that sin nature, we put another layer down in our soul. 
And that other layer is we want to be our own God. We want to be our own sovereign. We want to call our own shots. And so we've got these two competing desires of giving our heart to the sovereign God who has a plan for us, our, our maintaining our own control, our own sovereignty, and doing our own thing. So how can I know God and still be in control of my life? And the answer is I can't. I can't do it. And that means that my ability and your ability to really be a Christian and trust Christ is the work of the Spirit of God within us. So you sit down and you lose some control and exhibit some vulnerability. When you make a friend, you lose a little bit more control and become even more vulnerable. When you get married, you lose still more control and become even more vulnerable. But when you give your life to God, you, become, you lose total control and become absolutely vulnerable. And we just don't have the spiritual horsepower to be able to pull that off without the work of the Spirit of God in our own life. So Rahab got the gift of faith. A uh, second gift was hope. Now think about the adversity that she encountered. I mean, she was a Gentile, and Gentiles at that time really didn't have any knowledge of God's will. She was a woman and uh, would be marginalized, and particularly in that very male-dominated culture. She was trapped in Jericho, which is a God-forsaken drive-by in a denuded desert. Uh, her father's household was her only family, meaning she had no husband, no children, no earthly security. And she was also uh, a, a prostitute. The treasures of her femininity were exploited by multiple partners. And so racially, sexually, maritally, socially, uh, geographically, spiritually, she didn't have any hope. And the more thoughtful you are, the more aware you become that if there is no God in this world, there's really no hope. None at all. Uh, you know, one of the things that God does, and there's really two kinds of grace of God. There's the saving grace, which we all understand, but there's also a common grace. And the common grace of God is God just taking all the wonderful qualities of being human, like a bucket of jewels, and just casting them on the entire human race, whether they love God or not. Uh, they, can, they can work, they can love, they can make friends, they have ability. And we have neighbors all around us that don't really care a whole lot about God, but they're wonderful people. You can trust them implicitly, just terrific people. They want to raise a good family and, and, and get an education and uh, do well in work and contribute to the well-being of the community and so forth. And so you don't really need God to be great in this world. You don't need God to be good in this world, but you do need God to have hope. Hope. One day that God will get rid of all of the racism and the poverty and the oppression and clean up the mess and one day usher in a, 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 one, a, a beautiful kingdom where we're unshackled from the chains of sin. And so... Rahab was desperate and she needed hope and God gave it to her. Let me give you uh, the third gift that came and that would be the gift of love. And she found the gift of love from two very legitimate sources. She discovered, first of all, the love of God. She trusted the spies and for physical deliverance, certainly from Jericho, but God also rescued her from spiritual darkness and made Rahab his daughter. You know, we all have a thirst 
to be loved. And uh, we, we, we need relationship. We need love. And sometimes we'll, we'll do that which is unhealthy in order to achieve it. Sometimes form unhealthy relationships. But to attain health, but to attain real health, what we really need is to have someone who loves us, who is wise, who is forgiving, who is committed to our welfare, and who can quench our thirst for transcendence. And Rahab found that with God, and uh, so do we. Now, there's a second uh, love that she discovered, not just the love of God, but also the love of a husband. Uh, You see, after surviving the destruction of Jericho, we're told in Joshua 6.25 that Rahab actually lived the remainder of her life as a citizen of the nation of Israel. Now, back up 40 years for just a moment here. She was living in Israel, but 40 years ago, the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness under Moses' leadership. And God says, you know, you need a place of worship uh, while you're moving around in this. And so he had them build the tabernacle, which is a tent, the holy place, the holy of holies. Solomon later copied that thing and built a, a, a structure, a temple there in Jerusalem. But they had this tabernacle that they would move around and tear down and put up. But the first time this tabernacle was raised up, there were 12 men in the nation of Israel, and each one of those men was a prince. And when that tabernacle came up for the very first time, they made a special offering to God at that time. And the prince, uh, the, the one that was in the tribe of Judah, and that was the messianic line, the prince's name, his name was Nashon. And Nashon had a son named Salmon, who was also a prince. Now, if you go to Genesis, or excuse me, go to Matthew chapter one and look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you discover that uh, this man Nashon, the prince, that his son Salmon, also a prince, ended up marrying Rahab, and Rahab gave birth to Boaz. And if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, you know he plays a big part in the book of Ruth. And he marries Ruth. Boaz marries Ruth. And and Ruth gave birth to Obed. And Obed became the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. And that is the messianic line. I mean, uh, God gave Rahab a woman without any hope whatsoever, a believing husband who was a prince in Israel. I mean, God was there for this desperate woman. He was over the top there. This desperate harlot became a princess and one of the mothers of Jesus Christ, hence crooked branches in the family tree. You know, if Rahab... If Rahab were here today, and if she were standing up here, uh, she would be just shaking her head in disbelief. She'd say, you know, I had no family, no status, no security. I even sold my femininity in order to make a living in a city that was marked for destruction. I mean, that's the bottom of the barrel. And you know, we all have reprehensible sins. We've all done a lot of 
terrible stuff over the years. It doesn't mean that God's not working. It's just that we blow it again and again and again. And you know, the great thing is, is that when you're that, when you're desperate, God is a God who comes through. He's a God of grace. He's the God of a new start. You know, in Lamentations, it says the mercies of God are new every single morning. Every single morning, the mercies of God are brand new. We get a new, fresh start. And God said, just, just live this day for me. And if you screw up, then I'll forgive you and you keep right on living. And what you discover is that, you know, nobody came here today uh, and walked through the door wanting to be condemned for the things that we did yesterday or this past week. We're, we're all here to hopefully uh, worship the Lord and find a little bit of healing and, and then continue on in the grace of God as we, as we continue. And it's all just part of the, uh, the wonderful gospel of God. Uh, let, me, let me close with one other little uh, story here. And it's something you probably know about. Remember King Arthur? Uh, King Arthur was a uh, noble and wonderful king who envisioned a kingdom of uh, truth and righteousness, and he called it Camelot. And uh, there was a woman there named Guinevere, and he fell in love with Guinevere. And uh, Guinevere was sort of the princess die of, of that era. She was not only won the heart of the King Arthur, but also of everybody in the kingdom. Everyone loved her. And so Arthur and Guinevere, they get married with a lot of pomp and a lot of fanfare, and everything is wonderful, and everybody's celebrating until the unthinkable happens. And Guinevere is unfaithful, and she gave her heart away to somebody else and broke the heart of King Arthur and the law of Camelot. And the law of Camelot says she must die, and so Arthur's on the horns of a dilemma. Does he pardon the queen and violate justice, or does he execute the queen and violate love? And there's a guy named Mordred there. He's a prince who's, who's incredibly wicked, and he delights in the king's dilemma, and he, and he taunts him and says, let her die, your life is over. Let her live, your life is a fraud. What will it be, Arthur? Are you going to kill the law, or are you going to kill the queen? You know, and it's a poignant moment uh, in a powerful story. It's fictional, but there's an echo of a true story there. Because we are God's Guinevere. We are the bride of Jesus Christ. And we've been unfaithful. We've gone after other gods. We've ignored the sovereign desires of God in our own life. We've gone and done our own things, made all kinds of mistakes, and the law says we need to die. And Satan, Satan is the real Mordred, and he taunts God. He says, let them die and your heart is broken. Let them live and you're a fraud. What will it be? Will you violate or will you uphold your character and let justice prevail? Or will you follow your love and let justice be compromised? And God does both. He satisfies his justice by punishing his son so he could satisfy his love and embrace us. And when Jesus went to the cross, 
he was treated as if he had lived my life and your life so that God could treat us as if we lived Jesus' life. You know, don't let anybody ever tell you that Christianity is just a bunch of legalistic rules of you, you can't got to do this and this and it's all rules and everything. Listen, there are commands in Scripture and we understand that, but it's all for our good. It's all designed for our good and not for our bad. It's not legalism. And our goal is not so much when we break the rules, what do we do? The goal of Christianity, true spirituality, is just simply delighting in the one who kept the rules for us. You know, what a, what a, a tremendous gospel we have. What a tremendous book we have. What a tremendous future we have. Make mistakes, yeah, but you know what? God is real. He forgives. He gives us a fresh start. Each new day is a day in which we can truly live for him. All right. Okay. Covered a lot of turf today. Uh, anyway, uh, we're in the Advent season. Next week, we, we look at uh, the, the birthing mother of Jesus. And uh, that'll be an exciting week. And then we'll move on to some of the other Christmas stories as well in the future. So, will you stand and let's uh, close in prayer today, okay? Our Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you've showed us uh, again and again and again. Uh, Lord, it's, it's daily. It's there all the time. Uh, sometimes we take it for granted. Sometimes we're even sinful enough to barter against it. But, Father... Um, uh, you willingly bring us back in, even though we break your heart sometimes. And that's just the incredible God that we have. And uh, just help us, Father, as we continue, even throughout this day and into the season, uh, celebrating uh, the birth narrative, because really that's the roots of our salvation itself. And we thank you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. I love it so much because it... It talks about how God, um, how God wants to know our name, and He wants to feel our our hurt and our heart. And whenever we fail and we mess up, He still loves us. And I love this one line in this one song. It says, "Not because of who I am, but because of what You've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who You are. I am Yours." So let's sing this response song.
I'd like to close by reading this benediction from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.